This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Hello Rich. How's it going? Doing well. How about yourself? Uh, not bad. Good. Good. Do you uh, do you feel like um, I don't know going out there and making some changes, breaking some rules? Yeah. 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 I'm gonna take down the take down the authority. Take down the man. There you go. If we're, we're nothing if not <laughs> just rebels and and revolutionaries on this podcast. So yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like well, rules. I, rules are stupid. I appreciate. It. Yeah. Rules are rules are very dumb, and I don't like them. Especially Unless you bad make rules. new rules. If you make new rules, I'm okay with that though. Yeah. See, I um. I went to a career fair for my daughter recently, and I volunteered uh, for it. And there was uh, a friend of mine who was a lawyer was explaining to the kids the difference between good rules and bad rules, and was writing down examples of what you know is a good rule and what is a bad rule, like what r- rules that like lead to like deporting people are bad rules, and you know, and and, and you know, lead, rules that lead to good behavior are good rules. So, um, so I say we follow the good rules and ignore the bad ones. Right, and and this country definitely represents that <laughs> that thought process as well. So that that's indeed, good. So yes, yes. We so love, we love we don't like deporting people, and we love uh, being good. So that exactly, people. exactly. <laughs> so um, so we are talking about uh, NBA players who have caused rule changes through either their excellence and dominance of the game, or just happening to be in the right place in the right time. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting amount of people that have done this. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of people on this list are guys. A lot of the, the early rules, and especially those are, are big, like the guys just dominating the games, guys that are just doing so much that you have to change something. They have to, you know, alter the game a little bit to try to get these people to not dominate quite as much. And, of course, you could argue, hey, well, whatever, they're dominating too bad. Uh, but you'll see some of these rules are like, ah, it's kind of good that they did add that rule. Like, that. that is probably a good thing. And, and we kind of attribute them to these certain players. Not every rule that we're going to mention here is directly attributed to that player but there are many that that are kind of they came about because of this player they came about because of of influence from this player and there are going to be ones as well a lot of the more recent plays are just like silly people being in the right place at the right time but uh, for the most part these are kind of the elite players of the league that, that are mentioned uh, among these um, of guys that had kind of revolutionized the game by causing rule changes so you'll you'll see quite a few here but uh, just do note that a lot of them are um some of them were right place, right time, but like you said, a lot of them were also just like we are dominant players. You need to change the game uh, because we are just absolutely killing your league. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, yeah, and it, it's really it is really interesting how many of these are inspired by there's this dominant big man and we don't know what to do with him, and so we're going to change the you know entire uh, scope of the game to um, to work around that. And and luckily, you know these. Most of these rules led to basketball that you know that led to improvement in the game. So most of them had um, most of them had good outcomes. But uh, I'm not I'm not sure. Or even the ones that didn't necessarily have good outcomes usually they change course pretty quickly anyway. 
Right, yeah, the first one we're going to go uh, 1936, and this was Leroy Edwards, and it was the three-second rule, something we kind of always think of, but it wasn't a thing. Uh, the three-second rule was implemented in 1936 to prevent big players from controlling area and to prevent rough playing uh, under the board. Uh, Leroy Edwards is generally recognized as the player responsible for the implementation of the rule. Uh, Edwards was a 6'5 center in the early days of professional basketball. Uh, he started in college, and he joined the professional Oshkosh Wisconsin All-Stars in the National Basketball League in 1936. Uh, Three-second rule did not prevent Edwards from dominating the game throughout his career. He played professional ball from 1936 to 1949 and is considered one of the all-time best basketball players, but he is not in the Hall of Fame. Yes, that is a contention of uh, of Curtis Harris a lot, Probe's history, um, that Leroy Edwards is not uh, in the Hall of Fame. Definitely deserves to be, yeah, was a dominant star in the NBL, won multiple um, MVP awards, for those who don't know, the NBL was one of the two leagues that was the predecessor to the NBA that merged together with the BA in 19, um, 1950, and several teams, including the uh, Lakers and the Hawks and the Royals, um, all began in the uh, NBL before moving on to the uh, NBA, so... Uh, important to the roots of the game, and Leroy Edwards definitely one of the you know the the, the top elite players uh, during that time. But speaking of elite players, George Mikan, who did a whole lot. Of course, the game really was uh, changed a lot because of him in different ways. And the thing that probably is most well known, although happened relatively late in his career, is twenty four second clock. And it wasn't just because of Mikan, because there was definitely a an issue with there uh, being a lot of stalling at the end of game. Um, and uh, there's famously a game that Mikan was involved in. Uh, his team lost uh, 19 to 18 due to you know the um, the other team basically stalling the entire way through. So he his style um, led to sort of the introduction of the 24 second shot clock. Um, and uh, the uh, owner of the uh, Syracuse Nationals, uh, Danny Bizzoni, basically came up with the idea of there were he thought that you know basically each team took uh, sixty shots and that um, if you shot every twenty four seconds over the course of forty eight minute game you would get 120 shots. So it was a uh, ended up being kind of a stroke of genius. And eventually um, he came up with the idea in fifty one and then spent three years selling the other owners on it and finally. Once there were, you know, problems with attendance and feeling like the game was too slow in it, they adopted it in before the 55 season and the rest is history. It um, obviously revolutionized the game and uh, slowly led to increased popularity and everyone basically realized it was great for the most part um, almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny, my, my buddies and I, we, we, we tend to watch a lot of uh, uh, Illinois high school basketball. We were really big fans of it, but they don't have a shot clock, and we were at the state finals quite a few years ago. It's almost maybe a decade ago, uh, and there was a team that won, like, the state championship where they won like 24 to like 10 or something like that and they used like four corners and they they once they got up that was it they were not gonna score not gonna pass not gonna and it was just the worst game i've ever been to it was so bad i was like oh god why do we not have a shot clock at least for like the finals or whatever if you can't do it but yeah yeah it's pretty amazing that there are still leagues that don't have shot clocks and, and it's just it, it stuns me that people don't see the uh what it can do because you know uh, again this you know adding the 24 second shot clock to the nba uh, was just incredible. I mean, it, it eliminated stalling and it hiked up league scoring by 13.6 points per game. So basically saved the league too. I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, the league was just kind of boring and, and wasn't really doing much. And, and of course, the NBA, you, you know, at many times would have these peaks and valleys, but this was a huge part of getting the league, you know, to be something that people actually wanted to pay money to watch because otherwise it's just really not that fun of a game uh, without, you know, the scoring dynamic in there. So definitely something that's that's awesome. There's also the Mikan rule, 
It's actually dubbed the Mike and Roll. Uh, the paint widening from 6 inches to 12 inches due to his dominance inside. Uh, the year, the first year of the Mike and Roll, uh, George Mikan had 23.8 points per game. That was almost 5 points lower than what it had been the previous year. And his field goal percentage dipped to uh, .385 and it had been .428 the year before. So we see um, you know, the combination of Leroy Edwards and the three, you know, three in the key including then the Mike and Rule, where now the key is a little bit larger there so that, you know, he, he can't just park himself down there and he can't just be, you know, really close to the basket every time. He's kind of have to get away from the basket every so often. So we see kind of our first combination of those two um, rule changes kind of coming together to, to, to work, um, to just try to, you know, reduce dominance of certain players, in particular George Mikan. Yeah, and... Um... This is sort of right in the middle of Mikan's uh, period of dominance. It's been 51-52, and, uh, you know, the Lakers won. Um, they won five championships in six years in the NBA. They also won a, an NBL title uh, the year before then. So, you know, they were kind of on a run of six championships in seven seasons. The only year they didn't win one was when Mikan was injured. So, um, yeah, I mean, he was definitely the most dominant player of his era. And, and probably you know not really appreciated how just amazing he was during that time and how um you know obviously the athletes during that time it was also a still a very um white dominated game that there were a few a handful of uh of black players who had who were in the league but it was it was obviously a different game it's a completely different population a completely different um thing and yeah i can understand in in some ways you know looking down on the segregated game but you know Mikan was a tremendous player and um and really you know from from all you know, pretty much everything that's been told you know pr- pretty decent person too and and a, um, you know, a, a pretty good ambassador for the sport during a time that was important in its development and in becoming eventually a major league sport in a few years afterward. Yeah, and a few other uh, George Mikan things. Uh, his dominating play around the basket led to the outlaw of defensive goaltending in the NCAA. Uh, he also was responsible, of course, you know, mentioned ABA three-point line uh, later adopted by the NBA. Uh, the existence of the Minnesota Timberwolves and the multicolored ABA ball, which still lives on uh, today as the you know the money ball in the NBA three-point contest and is the iconic uh, ball of the ABA. And the kind of, I, I'd say the iconic image of the ABA. I think after our uh, basketball mysteries in the 1970s, I think we can pretty safely say, I mean, you show somebody that ball, and I think one of the first things they think of is either uh, is probably the ABA. Um, yes, absolutely. Basketball for sure. So, yeah, I mean, even when I was a kid, like I understood that it was the ABA ball. Yeah, even oh, yeah, the ABA yeah. had been gone for ten years or so. You know, by the time I I saw it, and understood it. So, yeah, that says something. All right, nineteen uh, sixties. Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, you can again not a direct result of anything that Wilt did, but pretty much the idea that, hey, Wilt is dominating this league and let's try to figure out something that we can do. And many of these rules you'll see are, are, are very Wilt-centric. Uh, lane widening, offensive interference, free throw dunks and inbounds. I uh, hear the ones, uh, like Mike in the lane, was widened once again from 12 to 16 feet to try to reduce uh, Wilt's presence near the basket. Uh, offensive interference was introduced. It's kind of amazing to, remember, to think that that wasn't uh, a rule at certain points, but I'm sure Wilt uh, making many points <laughs> via that said, okay, I think we maybe have to change this a little and come up with something but it's just amazing to think that that's not a thing that a guy could just go up there and just kind of put the ball in the in the basket but uh also uh shooters could no longer cross the free throw line during free throws wilt would uh routinely throw it against the backboard and then dunk it after free after free throws which um 
kind of sucked that they took that away from him because he kind of was terrible at free throws and it kind of played <laughs> yes. the rest of his career. So right, that sucks because I'm sure he made many points doing that. Because again, like just the, like imagining the NBA if that was a, a, an occurrence still today it would just be incredible. I think I I want them to get rid of that rule because I don't like I, I just I want to see Andre Drummond try that every single time he's up there. Like I think that'd be just incredible to see. But uh, yeah, pretty pretty awesome that he uh, could do that. And then they they said no, uh, you need to stop doing that. And uh, another last rule: uh, the ball can no longer be inbounded. Over the backboard, inbounders would stand underneath the basket and routinely lob the ball over the backboard for Wilt, which is another incredible play that I would love to see happen more often. We do still see inbound, you know, uh, uh, alley-oops, but never, like, we throw it over the backboard and then he just kind of climbs and, and, and dunks, but that that's pretty fun as well, so... That that would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I didn't realize that one. That was a, a change. Yeah, and, and some of these also target Russell as well. I think the yeah, offensive sure. inter- interference in particular. That you know, but yeah, we will offensively was just so incredibly dominant that um, you know that uh, they were trying to slow him down. So uh, yeah, that that's a pretty good one, obviously. Um, yeah, and a, a player in the seventies we talked about before, uh, Daryl Dawkins. Um, and it's most famous, I think, for uh, well, two things. I think one for um, his rim shattering dunks and backboard shattering dunks, in fact, and also, of course, his uh, penchant for uh, colorful nicknames. But um, he wasn't the first player famous for uh, breaking backboards. Gus Johnson of the Baltimore Bullets in the uh, late '60s and early '70s. Uh, he uh, shattered three during his career um, in the NBA, and then also. Uh, uh, Charlie, the helicopter, hence, uh, he shattered uh, two backboards in the same game in the ABA in 1970, <laughs> resulting in the uh, game uh, being canceled. Although I, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, that they actually finished the game like at 3 a.m. So um, uh, per- perhaps there's a different version of the story or perhaps he uh, In the ABA? The- Are you saying that there are two different stories of something in the ABA? <laughs> I, I will not believe it. That- I know they're not corroborating but, stories of something that happened in the AVA. I, I'm shocked. By this. Yes, but but I believe according to loose balls, they uh, the game was eventually uh, played uh, at like three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so. I I, do, I think we talked about this in one of our episodes of, of, of yeah. the basketball mysteries. I just love the idea that like he breaks one and it probably takes like an hour to put this thing back together, and then he just comes and dunks again. They're like, God damn it, Charlie! Like it took <laughs> yes. so long to get that. Like we're the AVA, we don't yes. have that much money. Like we don't really we can't no. afford another basket, man. Like yeah, and, and this is Pittsburgh, which was like the the, the worst. <laughs> right, and, it's like do we have, and, like, uh, had the least money, so right. yeah. We have no money. Please right. stop breaking backboards. But uh, yeah, and then uh, uh, Daryl's dunks were uh, Daryl Dawkins' dunks were so dynamic that they forced the NBA to change the hoop that they use. At the end of the uh, 1979 season, the NBA decided to switch the newly created breakaway rims that would allow the rim to, to bend a little bit when too much pressure was applied. So uh, kind of altering the way that the rim and, and we, we kind of we know those rims now is kind of that's what every rim that you know any decent backboard you go to any decent you know you know you go to high school you go to college you watch an NBA game. They're all using the breakaway rims, so commonplace now, but then it was kind of the first thing, and the NBA said, well, we need to get these because he keeps breaking our damn backboards, so... And and of course you know the the dunks themselves the uh, the first one with uh, Bill Robazine is you know one of the more famous um, images of its time it's you know it's on YouTube it's on constant videos I don't think the second time that he uh, shattered the uh, backboard I'm not sure that I don't believe that is actually on video I could be wrong about that but I don't I don't recall ever seeing it I'm not sure if you ever did uh, I don't think so no I've only seen that that yeah. the first one that you mentioned yeah so I'm, I'm I'm thinking the other one isn't on but he did it you know within a month or so of each other before you know before they basically told him to stop doing it. And then, of course, uh, change the rim. There's also a famous uh, story of Dawkins uh, breaking a rim in uh, during a practice that he didn't want to uh, be a part of uh, during the um, 
uh, around this time during the league. And, and there are a couple of different stories about that. One, that Julius Irving encouraged him to uh, do it because he didn't, wasn't really in the mood for practice either. And then another that says that he uh, didn't want him to do it, and then he did, and then Dawkins did it anyway. So. <laughs> uh, 1990s, the five-second closely guarded rule. And this one is hard to attribute to one particular player, but uh, many people bring up two guys, uh, Mark Jackson and Charles Barkley. And, and, and many people do claim that this was a... Uh, um, uh, a response to Jackson's penchant for backing down opposing point, uh, point guards in the post uh, for 15 or more seconds at a time. And if you've ever seen Mark Jackson highlights, and I use those terms loosely, uh, you do see him with his back to the basket just kind of bullying up on a guy trying to, to get any position. And, and, and because of that, and, and in large part because of Mark Jackson, uh, the Institute of the Five-Second Rule, um, and it's sometimes referred to as the Mark Jackson Rule. Uh, Charles Barkley as well was known for getting it in the post and just kind of putting his big ass to, to the basket for a long amount of time until he got the guy out of the way and then scored. But a lot of people do attribute it to a little, a uh, little bit more of Mark Jackson. Um, and the rule, if people don't know, is a player in the front court below the free throw line extended is not permitted to dribble the ball with his back or side to the basket for more than five seconds. So interesting one there. Uh, 1987, we have the Michael Jordan rule. Now this is a very interesting one that uh, actually, uh, I think a Twitter user uh, brought to our attention. I was not aware of this being kind of attributed directly to him, but it was it, it definitely um, one that is at the start of the 1987 season, the NBA created a new rule that prohibits teams from placing three or more players above the top of the key away from the ball, thus clearing out spots for a one-on-one or two-on-two play. A violation would result in loss of possession. Officially, it's called Section 32, Paragraph 15, but around the league, it's getting known, and this is in a Chicago Tribune article, um, that it's getting known as the Michael Jordan rule in response to Jordan's insane 37.1 scoring average in the uh, 1986 87 season and just to give you an idea of how dominant Jordan was that season he had two 60 point games six 50 point games and 29 40 point games so that's uh, quite a lot um According to Bulls coach Doug Collins, the Bulls did not specifically have plays to isolate Jordan. He's lying. Uh, it's just that his skills enable him to look as if everybody else is standing around and watching. So I don't know what's happening. It's just, you know, he's, he's just doing it. Like, I, I don't know why my players are all standing around and looking at him. I, I, whatever. Like, all right, Doug, we, we get it. But that's, that's, Yeah, you know. well, when it comes to bad lies, that's all. That's an all-time, like, uh, right. No, we don't right isolate there. Michael Jordan. No, are you? No, 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 no. We don't do that. He just, it just happens. Like, I don't know. I, I call the play. He doesn't run it and then oh whatever man geez scored 60 again darn but uh, uh because of these players seemingly could score almost any time against any single defender uh many teams have used them that way and when teams would try to double on the offensive player they'd often be caught in a zone defense by leaving another play on garden which calls for a technical foul on the second violation so you couldn't do zone at this time so it wasn't really a good way to guard these guys if they cleared out so uh this was why the rule uh kind of went there and this is uh, rod thorne the uh, vp of uh, operations at the time he said over the past four or five years basically you were seeing a lot of two-man games and three guys with nothing to do the prevailing opinion was that aesthetically it looked terrible it's not what basketball is about there was some discussion about allowing zone defenses but it was decided to try this and see what happened um and added uh jerry kraus a lot of coaches thought it was ugly to have eight guys standing around watching two play and in effect that's what it was at times which is uh, interesting because both those men have connection to the bulls including rod thorne who drafted jordan and then jerry kraus who had jordan at the time but you know hey like i guess they yeah. didn't want him to be as dominant as he was I, to be fair they won a lot more when they uh post this rule but i don't know if that was exactly why it was because yeah it's not like it got rid of isolation no exactly I mean, but <laughs> so um but but, but yeah it, it's interesting that they saw this as such a, a thing yeah i don't remember i'm not sure if they 
abandoned that or if you know if there were ways in which the you know teams were able to kind of get around it um maybe with some nominal movement that was sort of just kind of faked movement sort of designed to get around the rule but still to you know set up isolation plays i'm not sure but right. that, yeah, that, like that's two guys running baseline even though they're obviously not in the play and they're not doing anything right yeah. exactly yes yeah so uh yeah minute bowls um quotes of um the the man who made the rule i want him to be my friend i don't like the isolations sometimes i was so far outside that i thought i'd catch a cold so <laughs> well, I love of course later ball. on he'd just do three pointers so it'd be okay yeah, exactly yeah so yeah um, uh, of course on defense you, of course during the time you had to basically stick with your man on defense there was you could um rotate on defense but you couldn't uh just you know um do what they do today and kind of cheat over to um you know to somebody else you had to be, you had to really be very close to your man or that was legal defense yeah, almost so that obviously like change the dynamics there so, yeah, yeah. The, the, the bull center or whoever whatever center they had an isolation player could just have him parked in the, you know the corner of the three point line with no desire to ever catch the ball it's not like it was a stretch four it was just get right. out of the way and then yeah take your defender out of the way as well including if it's a minute bull or guys that are really good at, at, at you know blocks you know just get that guy as far away from me as possible and then i'm gonna isolate and go to the rim so yeah, it, it was a good rule, but like you're saying, it it I don't know how strictly it, it was enforced because yeah, we saw of course the '90s and much of the early 2000s that it you know isolation players still dominated the league and in many cases dominated more than ever. So uh, it didn't really help all that much. And now uh, Will Chamberlain believed that the rules uh, they changed the rules to help Jordan dominate. Well, they changed the rules to prevent Wilt from dominating. If Michael was here right now, I would say to him, when you are so great that the league tries to change the rules and attempt to stop you, then you can claim you are the best ever. Every rule change I've seen during your career has meant to enhance your game, such as shortened three-point line, hat-checking rules, and well-defined rules regarding illegal defenses. So, although, although that this in this case, this rule would go against that. Right. I mean, I, I would, I think Wilt does have a bit of a point that there were a lot of rules i'm not saying that they were designed to help michael but they certainly jordan benefited from them but i you know i, I do think in this case obviously that um i mean jordan was still predominant didn't really prevent him but he never scored 37 points uh, a game again so although it probably some of that i think maybe just have been some changes in the way that the bulls right. know, did things to get other players involved and they would have better players involved quickly enough without doug collins <laughs> we should yeah it, well yeah I, right i mean even with doug but yeah, especially yeah. after doug was gone with phil jackson yes Absolutely. Uh, 1990, the Trent Tucker rule. This is our first rule of a guy that's like, huh, who the hell is Trent Tucker? Uh, the Trent Tucker rule was born out of a game between the Knicks and the Chicago Bulls on January 15th, 1990. Uh, the game was tied at 106 with one-tenth of a second left in regulation and the Knicks in possession. Uh, during a timeout called by the Knicks, both teams prepared for what was seen as the only possible way the Knicks could win in regulation. An alley-oop tap-in from out-of-bounds by Patrick Ewing. Uh, when play resumed, the Knicks players uh, throwing the ball in, Mark Jackson, the aforementioned Mark Jackson, uh, saw the alley-oop play get broken up. He then proceeded to throw the ball inbounds to Tucker, who was the only player open. Tucker then turned around and hit a three-point jump shot before the buzzer, giving the Knicks the win, 109-106. Replay showed that the clock was not started until Tucker's shot was already in midair. Uh, the Bulls, led by first-year head coach Phil Jackson, later filed an official protest with the NBA about the play. Uh, by their estimate, the play uh, took closer to 0.4 seconds. However, the timekeeper, Bob Billings and referee Ronnie Nunn, uh, who were working the game, claimed everything went perfectly fine. Uh, if you watch the video it's obvious that the clock does not start until like it's in and, and again like um i won't get into the gritty details here 
Uh, but you can look it up if you want. But there were a lot of like scoreboard things. Like people got really deep into this role where people looked at like different scoreboard manufacturers and and delay of like when you press a button and when the thing starts or whatever. So it's a whole mess. If you want to get into that, you can you can read up. Just look up the Trent Tucker role and you'll find that out. But uh, anyway, Vice President of Operations uh, Rod Thorne again was the only NBA executive to side with the Bulls. Uh, incidentally, Thorne was once the general manager of the Chicago Bulls, as we mentioned above. So it's kind of funny again. Uh, Thorne argued that it was physically impossible for a player to receive an inbounds pass and release it uh, release it for a shot in less than a tenth of a second. He pointed out that tests in European basketball games, which had counted down to the final minute of a period in tenths of seconds, uh, proved that a catch-and-shoot takes at least three-tenths of a second. Uh, so the NBA commissioner, David Stern, made it a requirement that all NBA arenas have their official game clocks properly calibrated in the wake of the incident, resulting in massive scoreboard overhauls in almost all arenas. And I said, again, you can um, you know, look that up if you want in kind of the gory details of uh, scoreboard uh, tech. But uh, the official rule now reads that no less than 0.3, uh, 0.3 must expire on the game clock and shot clock when a ball is thrown in bounds and then hit. Uh, instantly out of bounds if less than 0.3 expires in such a situation the timer will be instructed blah 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 anyway you need at least uh, 0.3 on the clock before you can take a shot but uh, yeah this was the last rule and it is known as the Trent Tucker rule so very interesting there you go yeah and I like Phil Jackson's point where uh, you know that uh, there were some arenas that were notorious for the clock holding uh, at one tenth of a second before the horn sounded. Um, and then he said, as a player for the Knicks in the seventies, he noted that the clock there tended to run slower when they were behind and faster when they were ahead. <laughs> uh, the Celtics, of course, notorious for that. I'm sure the other arenas as well. You know, when when you have a home clock operator who works for the arena and is you know biased toward the whole team, you're going to get stuff stuff like that. So yeah. obviously that was a, a a needed rule and and makes sense. Yeah, and so yeah, the only types of uh, field goals allowed at at uh um at point two or point one or a tip in or a high lob so and we've seen a few of those be game winners sure. here and there it's obviously pretty rare but um but th- that does happen on occasion absolutely i think uh, earlier this year mark saw did one right uh that's right yeah, yeah I, that's right yes um good point so um uh Shaquille O'Neal has been the uh, has generated a couple of uh, rules changes. Um, one uh, early in his career, after the nineteen ninety two ninety three season, uh, they uh, increased the steel brace strength and increased stability of the backboard to prevent the hoot from falling down. After after Shaq after broke it twice in the previous season, the glass remained intact, but the uh, welts in the uh, goal standard failed. So, and they also introduced technical foul for players who destroyed the basket. So, um, preventing him from doing so again. But there's uh, you can easily find the video of him breaking the hoop and uh, causing delays in games, much like Jared Dawkins did uh, before, but even in a perhaps more dramatic fashion, although not quite the shattering glass uh, effect that um, the Jared Dawkins video has. Yeah, I do like the Shaq one too, where the bat so just like rips apart. And I mean, just, yeah, like, falls it's down. impressive. It's like a yes. horrible, like <laughs> horrible safety hazard for everybody involved. So, yeah, uh, it's pretty it, good. It, yeah. It's amazing. Um, there's also and, the Hackashack as well. But, yes. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. Like, again, we haven't seen – like, there, there's kind of like – they don't want to go full on and, like, changing the rules a little bit. But it'll be interesting to see if in the next few years they, they have kind of went that way a little bit more and more of trying to figure out ways to reduce it. And I, I do wonder because we we all know it as a Hackashack. Like, like you know, there are the, you know, the horrible, like, Hack of Dwight's and people – but no, it's, it's Hackashack because Shaq and Shaq rhyme or whatever. So that's – I feel like when they do make the rule, they kind of have to call it the Hackashack rule, right? Like, like if, they, if and when they do come up with something that's, like, a unilateral, like, okay, you cannot do this or there's got to be something different about doing it. I think they're, they're going to have to call it the hack shack rule, right? So I think we should 
should keep this in place for whenever it does happen. But we have seen many of the rules uh, alter a little bit for those free throws and, 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 you know, when you can foul guys, how you foul them, all that sort yeah, of stuff. So. Right, intentional fouls, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm all for um, getting rid of it entirely, but I guess uh, I, I feel like it has not happened significantly yet so far this season. I could be wrong about that, but I feel like uh, we have not had a whole lot of instances of happening, so perhaps just limiting it in that respect mm-hmm. will uh, will save us, but... Um, so, so this is an interesting one and, uh, sort of a long, um, evolution where the, um, with, uh, with zone defense, um, the NBA had outlawed zone defense from back in the BAA days from in 1947 and then stayed that way until the 2002 regular season. You, you know, it's interesting talking about in the, uh, the, the Jordan rule, uh, from 87 ahead of time, how they had kind of considered zone, um, as a way to kind of prevent isolation, um, heavy play. And then finally, you know, 15 years later or so, they finally decide, okay, I guess we're going to go with zone. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was an interesting case. And this was uh, Stu Jackson, who uh, was uh, a part of the NBA's, uh, um, management team at the time, and he said the illegal defense uh, guidelines need to be eliminated because they've become problematic. Uh, problematic for our fans who don't understand the rule, problematic for officials who admittedly have had dip, uh, difficulty administering the rule, and finally our teams have used the guidelines in a way that produces isolation basketball. So he specifically says isolation basketball. So this one's hard to really attribute to one guy, but you can look at the time period of when this sort of happened. Allen Iverson's obviously a huge one, but also guys like Shaq, and you know this is a post-Michael Jordan league as well, uh, where a lot of teams you know thought that that was the way to play basketball. You get your, your best player, you give the ball and you let him kind of isolate and dribble around and yeah that worked for some guys doesn't always work for everybody but either way it, it led to very you know not very fun basketball and, and people can bring up you know the 90s of how great uh, watch a lot of late 90s but it's boring as hell <laughs> especially early 90s basketball it's not very fun i'll take this basketball any day where guys are passing and moving around and doing all this sort of stuff so uh it was definitely in reference to that and then they also um added a three second rule at this time a defensive three second rule uh and Stu jackson again said we uh, when we eliminated the legal defense guidelines uh the number one concern was teams would take bigger players like a shaquille o'neal theo ratliff sean bradley or dikembe mutombo and simply put them in the middle of the lane to camp out and prohibit drives to the basket and encourage low percentage shots uh, an effort to help alleviate this concern the uh, defensive three second violation uh was recommended so they they added i think they added that on a year later or so or, or quite quite a little bit after that because they realized oh shit <laughs> like those guys could just park down there and that's not a problem but then they, they added that and then i think i think we're pretty good now i kind of like the way that defense is played in the nba now and i think there's a little bit more skill involved in kind of playing spots and 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 you don't see teams running like two three zones or any of these like boxing ones you don't see a whole lot of that but it allows guys to kind of play off their player a little bit and, and and play lanes a little bit more and uh, you know famously LeBron James uh, especially in his mind heat tenure would kind of play in the middle of the safety and would kind of guard whoever needed to get guarded and, and kind of influence the play that way I like it that way I don't know what you feel yeah I mean I do I mean it's allowed defense to get more complex and it rewards more intelligence and versatility and speed and you know those type of things and quick hands and that kind of stuff, you know, and you, and you can't really, it's much harder to hide a bad defender than it used to be as well. Um, so I think it's, you know, I, I think the more that we encourage movement, the more that we encourage skill, the more that we encourage intelligence, I think it makes for a better game. And I, I think the game has evolved in a, uh, you know, it's, it's not a perfect game now, but it's definitely, I think it, it it's much more watchable than a lot of the 
late 90s early 2000s are right there's some good stuff in the late 90s early 2000s i don't i don't want to disparage no, i love that era. But, i love that era but, but it's, it's definitely yeah. it's a taste. yeah when you when you watch it like, go go watch on you know the harvard <laughs> classics or whatever go watch it it's like yeah. it's a whole different league like you have to kind of be all like oh okay yeah right yeah. <laughs> this is what i'm the, gonna watch now for the next hour like yeah the giant baggy uniforms don't help no either, god like, that hurts yeah. a lot yeah and bill walton on commentary <laughs> that, that, that that helps for me though but um <laughs> oh, okay well depending on your point of view <laughs> exactly I'm, and uh yeah snapper jack uh who am I thinking of? Uh, Snapper Jones. Yeah, he's on a lot of those games too, like the late night. Oh yeah, ones. good old good old Steve Snapper Jones. Yeah. Yes. And then unfortunately you yeah. have Isaiah Thomas also on commentary, which is, is uh, <laughs> yeah. There was one yes. game I watched that and it was like there was two games back to back and I watched one of them was Isaiah on commentary, which is awful, and then there was Magic on commentary, which was equally oh, like, bad. Yeah, Magic was really terrible at commentary. I I, I feel like Magic was worse. I, he I don't really remember because he kind of giggled the entire well. time. It was like it was like Magic Johnson. It was like if you gave Magic Johnson a microphone, like what do you think Magic's gonna do like half the time? And it's just like he kind of was just like smirking. You could tell he was kind of laughing or whatever yeah isaiah was pretty terrible I mean, isaiah's on nba tv now and he's not horrible but you know uh magic was pretty terrible <laughs> uh almost uh, he was what's worse his uh his late night show or his commentary or his coaching um i would imagine the late night show would probably be the worst okay, but right. um uh, there you go it, it's weird because a lot of people talk about and obviously like Magic Johnson was a genius basketball player, so you would think that he would be able to talk about the game in an interesting way, but for whatever reason, he just doesn't have the ability to convey that, or he just just thinks that saying platitudes are his... Right you know what you're supposed to do as a commentator i don't know yeah, it's, but. An ex, it's an ex-player problem i mean it doesn't happen as much with the nba I yeah think it's pretty good i mean ex, like you watch football games and it's just like ex-nfl players being like yeah i gotta try harder you know what i mean like that sort of yeah. stuff but like maybe i think it does a pretty good job but there are still those guys that you 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 kind of that have those there, there are some yeah there, there are some really good ones too yeah. you know um but yeah reggie miller not so good uh john barry not so good um but yeah a lot of brent barry's great you know uh chris weber's pretty good well, Weber's getting like that, a lot better you know? I, I noticed that earlier this year i'm like ah, you know what weber's actually pretty good because he was pretty terrible in the beginning and i think he was he was nervous to kind of get too much into the, the x's and o's and get too much into that but like the nba people love that i mean you're not going to really bore a lot of people by by giving your expertise on you know basketball so go for it do it but yeah he's definitely gotten yeah. better um exactly. 2004 vince carter this is a rule that he had uh it's not really dubbed the vince carter rule but it is in direct relation to him uh in 2004 the nba informed toronto raptors star that he could no longer listen to music on his ipod during the 20 minute warm-up period before each game uh carter recently started listening to the music on his headphones he uses hip new ipod uh and that was a uh, violation of the league's rules on proper attire so they told him no more headbuds and no more ipod so Yes. So, um, yeah, when earbuds were a new thing. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's been revolutionary. Yeah. <laughs> there were this his sweet iPod <laughs> and his earbuds. Like, Twelve years ago, yeah. Doing, buddy? yeah. <laughs> that's it's just amazing. Because when yeah. you read it, they're like on his new Apple iPod. You're just like, oh yeah, like that. That yeah. was like not a thing for. I bet he could fit a whole hundred songs on it. <laughs> he had the shuffle though, so I don't know how. I mean, oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know, if, I don't know which one. <laughs> the iPod shuffle is just a weird. Like, yeah, you're add music yes. to it. We'll just play whatever we want. Like, why would I want that? Yes. <laughs> So, um, so here's a fun one from, uh, 2010, uh, no upside down logo headbands. Uh, the NBA, uh, made a move to outlaw them after Rajon Rondo famously wore his headband with the iconic NBA logo upside down. Uh, Kelly Dwyer at Ball Don't Lie wrote that, um, in the nineties when headbands were starting to come back into vogue after a 20 year or so absence, the NBA decided to cash in and replace all the team-issued headbands they provided free of charge to their players with a version that featured the famous NBA logo on top of the team colors, and you had to wear the logoed version for fear of a fine. Uh, Rashid uh, decided to turn his uh, headband inside out, but the league came down on that, so eventually he uh, stopped. And uh, then um, 
uh, Rondo stopped wearing headbands altogether for a while and then returned to uh, uh, wearing them with no local presence. And um, and then this year he was the first player since uh, Ben Wallace to wear a headband in-game for the Chicago Bulls. In fact, the Bulls have had a long had a rule which Ben Wallace violated about uh, wearing headbands, which yeah, is a very Bulls thing to do. Dumb rule. It's so stupid. And it was like yes. the beginning of the end of the Ben Wallace and the Bulls era thing. But like, it right. came out and Skiles was pissed and the Bulls were nuts. And it was like, oh, God, yeah. who cares? It's like the Yankees. and It's it's like uh, it's like that Simpsons uh, episode with all the baseball players yeah, and Don Mattingly. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it, it shaves his uh, sideburns and they don't know what the sideburns are eventually like shaves <laughs> half of his head so you know yeah it's good. i told you to share those sideburns that's great <laughs> my favorite Simpsons episode ever but uh it's it's, it's pretty good karan yeah. butler 2010 no straw chewing during games <laughs> this is a, just a bizarre rule that i could not fathom happening but one of the more bizarre rule changes came in the nba uh, in 2010 when an nba official uh the aforementioned Stu jackson contacted then dallas mavericks forward karan butler informing him that he was no longer able to ch- ch- chew straws during games no longer able to chew straws during games um and this is from espn.com nba executive president uh, Stu jackson phoned butler on tuesday and told him to leave his straws at home butler did not play against the los angeles lakers due to a reaction to medication so he was unable for comments, uh, but the Mavs confirmed that the league is serious about outlawing strew, uh, straw chewing. A local uh, radio show talk host encouraged fans to come to Wednesday night game uh, against the Lakers, bearing straws to show their support for Karan Butler. Um, and then they come into detail here. The habit is not new to Butler, who reportedly had chewed uh, plastic straws at a rate of 12 per game for years. He disclosed in a chat on NBA.com in March 2009 that he started chewing straws in games as a teenager. Um, very, very strange here. And this uh, would not be the first interesting habit that Butler had to kick. Uh, in the summer of 2009, Butler blogged on NBA.com that he had lost 11 pounds just by giving up his daily addiction of drinking at least six 12-ounce bottles of Mountain Dew. I was going through withdrawals, Butler said on NBA.com. Honestly, those first two weeks without the dew were the roughest two weeks of my life. I'm talking headaches, sweats, and everything. Butler said he used to drink the caffeinated soda before Wizards practice and would knock back two before games. Uh, I like that kind of amazing Butler is 11 year old me because I had the <laughs> yes. exact same addiction as I was a fat 11 year old. <laughs> I like how he called it the uh, do too. That's pretty. Sick. Yeah, the do. Yes, but you, you don't want to go without the do. That's for sure. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The the, the straw chewing is interesting. I don't know if I have anything to add about that, but the the fact that I didn't realize it was 12 per game. You know, for <laughs> that's a lot of straws, that man. Like... I I kind of forgotten that they'd ask him to stop, and he didn't mean he was around for a number of years. He, I don't know. He, he kind of this was around the time we stopped kind of being a star player but uh you know i don't know if it uh if like that was like samson cutting his hair if like not being able to chew the straws like took away his basketball powers and he only became an okay player but um anyway certainly wasn't the dude that was doing it but yeah yeah it's just it's fun, interesting and if you look up times. player if you do want to look it up if you look up uh Karan butler uh straws you will see many many pictures of him uh including he had like, oh, yeah. like they weren't always like a like sometimes they are like a big straw which seems like very dangerous but sometimes they were just like a little piece of a straw that he would just kind of put in his mouth and, and chew on or whatever so that i don't know if i necessarily care all that much i mean yeah sure it's a choking hazard or whatever but like yeah. there are times I mean, when he's you an see adult, him on the court so, with like a big straw yeah. and you're like all right that that maybe not be the best idea right so. i wonder if they'll make uh, steph curry stop chewing on his mouthpiece eventually yeah that, know, that really that. annoys my wife uh like every time i watch a game <laughs> she's like what is he doing why is he doing that <laughs> like, i don't know like, well it does see i mean you know like, i can see the health concerns you know, that she might have you know but uh <laughs> being the nurse and all but, yeah she does um, disgusting too so that's yeah, exactly. So the Reggie Miller rule, which came 89 months after he had played his last <laughs> NBA game in 2012. They did but, call uh, it the Reggie Miller rule, though, so we're not making that yes. up. They called it the Reggie Miller rule. So, so getting rid of uh, offensive uh, player leg kicks. Um, 
So a shooter who kicks his legs out during jump shot attempts to create contact and draw fouls. Um, officials plan to call offensive fouls and shooters who blatantly kick out their legs to initiate contact. I, I don't know if that really was – sometimes they'll come up with these um, new rules or new interpretation of rules. And sometimes they'll stick with it and a lot of times they'll just you know enforce it for a month and then kind of forget about it. So I, I honestly have not paid close attention to how much leg kicking there is going on. I can't say that I've seen it blatantly happen, but um, I can't – you know I, I haven't necessarily noticed the absence of it either, although it's hard to notice the absence of something. Yeah, exactly. I, I saw it like just a few days ago. I saw Gordon Hayward do it, and I saw Dwayne Wade there you still go. does it all the time. Like, yeah, it's a very okay. weird thing. They, they enforce it sometimes. It's the same thing with that one rule. I mean, yeah. I remember a few years oh. ago the uh, the head fake and then drive your body into the guy rule. They were big yeah. about that for like a year, and then like I just saw it the other day happen again, like multiple times. Yeah, so it's like all right. Well. And, and and of course Draymond uh, doing the, the the weird like you know kicking his leg out and you know <laughs> people kicking people yet. in the nuts. Yeah, <laughs> right. Or even when he's not, even just sometimes when there's nobody there, he'll just kick his leg out weird. He, he does have that weird uh, – I mean, it's, it's similar to that, but it's not exactly because he doesn't always do it with somebody right there. He just does it sort of randomly, just some sort of quirk that he has. So, yeah, I guess now I think about it, I, I do see it here and there. Mm-hmm. But last one, LaMarcus Aldridge, uh, late-game goaltending reviews. Yeah, it's an interesting one. This is uh, this, this came about uh, Blazer forward LaMarcus Aldridge was called for goaltending a Kevin Durant shot by referee Scott Foster. This is 2012-2013 season, by the way. Uh, a call that helped push the game to overtime where the Oklahoma City Thunder wound up defeating the Blazers. Uh, the next day, the NBA admitted that Foster's call was incorrect. Uh, Foster, of course, later apologized. At the start of the 2013 season, uh, 2012-2013 season, the NBA announced a number of reviewable calls, including calls for reviews of goaltending in the final two minutes of the game, and all flagrant fouls were reviewed to assess uh, their classification. But, uh, yeah, this was uh, in direct result of this play, and they, they couldn't review it. This was a time when they could review th- some things, and, and now we know what is like commonplace that everything you know everything gets reviewed like way too long and for 45 minutes each time. But uh, this was a time when they couldn't review that. So there was, you know, the, the Blazers are going, oh, my God, like, no, I didn't, you know, Marcus Aldridge is, is looking at it. You could see it on the replays. Everybody could see it. Everybody knew that it was a bad call, but they couldn't review it. They couldn't change it, whereas now, because of that, as a result, you know, 2012-13 season, they added that among a bunch of other things uh, to the reviewable calls. But this is kind of attributed to Marcus Aldridge as well, because his was the famous one that that was very blatant that he did not goaltend, but they still called it because they didn't have a chance to review it or, or, or take it back, and and it led to uh, you know the Blazers, I believe, losing in overtime of that game as well. So, yeah, if you could, would you just get rid of you and just? I would. Uh, yeah, I, and like, yeah, I've kind of been that way for a while. Um, yeah, I want the, every call to be right, and like, I like the idea that like calls are right and I don't like you know if my team was getting screwed by by a bad call I would hate that but like watching the games and I think that's the same way with the NFL like I don't watch football anymore and a lot of it is because every single play gets reviewed every little second is oh let's go I don't want to watch like in baseball it's getting really bad too I don't want to watch a bunch of like referees huddling over of like a tv screen for 10 minutes or whatever and they just take so long if they were something real quick where there's a guy in the home office and he goes yeah good yeah bad or whatever like you know you got 10 seconds to kind of go okay I looked at it yeah it's good all right you're good like you know it's, it's something like clarification calls I'm fine with that, but the idea of like these guys standing around and sitting there for for ten minutes just bores the hell out of me, and I, I really dislike it. So, yeah, and yeah, I don't care for it either. They have, I they've been trying to get at least to go some of the calls faster, and they've actually done a fairly good job of doing that. But yeah, I, I would. It also it does take away from being able to enjoy something in the moment sometimes with the fear that uh, you know, it could get reversed, like a last second shot. You know, you can't necessarily celebrate the last second shot right away. 
you know, even, you know, if it's made, if, it, if it's even close, you know, because you got to do the review and, you know, make sure that it left his hand and all that. It just kind of takes away from the joy of the, you know, the unbridled joy of that moment with having the thought in your head of, oh, maybe that, maybe that didn't make it in time, right, yeah, you know, that's, that's so. Good. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, they're, they're never getting rid of it, so I, and, and I understand that. And I understand wanting to get it right, and I understand you know using some technology to do that. But I do feel like the, I, I do think keeping those moments kind of pure and keeping those moments exciting, and you know, and not just having the slow slow in disruption of the game, I think is more important to me than getting it right. Yeah, I, all the time, just because you know it's impossible, impossible standard. I, one thing I do like about, and a lot of people don't like the last two minute reports that they've been doing the last couple of years. Um, but I actually do like them because I do think it, it just kind of, it sort of demonstrates just how hard it is to get these calls right. And how, you know, just, I think the transparency and if like people can more understand that like, Hey, these referees are, you know, have a hard job and didn't really do the best they can. And they're going to get things wrong, but you know, that's just part of life. It's just, it's a game. It's not life or death. Then I think like, um, you know, I, I think that's maybe a better attitude, but I, I feel like the response to them ends up kind of being hyperbolic and ends up like being kind of crazy. Yeah, and you know, it probably goes against what it's meant to do. But I do think like if you take them kind of in the spirit that they are and just sort of realize like, you know, it's yeah, referees just sometimes screw up just like everybody else. I think, you know, I, I think they can be helpful taking them that way. Yeah, certainly. I, I 100% agree with you. Well, there you go. That's nice when we 100% agree. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, everyone, for checking us out. You can find us at the step back at fansider.com and uh, check out all the podcasts and writing and good stuff there. I'm sure you'll find something that you love. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back or search for the Step Back for the entire Step Back feed. And uh, also, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes. Ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.